Hello and welcome to Palestine Deep Dive. And today I'm joined by the lawyer, academic and writer, Kenneth Stern. And Kenneth joins us from Brooklyn, New York. My name is Mark Seddon. Uh, I used to work for uh, the United Nations. I was a speechwriter for the UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon. I used to work also for the a former president of the General Assembly. But before that, I was a journalist. I worked as the uh, UN and diplomatic correspondent for Al Jazeera television. Uh, and prior to that, I was editor of the newspaper um, in Britain, which is where I am right now. Um, now, Kenneth uh, is, for those of you who do not know him, uh, a director of the Bard Center for the Study of Hate, uh, which is a program of the Human Rights Project at Bard College in New York. And from 2014 to 2018, he was executive director of the Justice and Karen Rosenberg Foundation. And from 1989 to 2014, he was director of anti-Semitism and hate studies and extremism for the American Jewish community. Uh, his 2020 book, The Conflict Over the Conflict, the Israel-Palestine Campus Debate, and we're going to be discussing many of these issues connected with all of that today, uh, examined attempts of partisans of each side to censor the other and the resulting damage to academia. Um, and of course, very pertinent to our discussions tonight is the decision of um, the Kennedy School of Business, uh, the Dean of the Kennedy School of Business, to reverse his decision to block the fellowship of uh, our guest from last week, Kenneth Roth, formerly of the Human Rights Watch. Now, of course, Kenneth, our Kenneth with us this week is uh, a longtime human rights champion, um, a very, very distinguished record of standing up and campaigning for the rights of others amongst, uh, uh, of course, uh, um, others, including the Native, uh, Native Americans and the homeless. So it is a great delight to have you, Kenneth. Um, a, a, very, a very brave, uh, a moral uh, um, man that you are. Uh, you've been very forthright in, in uh, standing up for human rights and against racism in whatever form it takes uh, over the years. And I wondered if, if I might begin by asking you, actually, I mean, you know, here we are. This is, we're we're in the we're in the twenty first century, twenty 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 three. Um, certainly, when I was growing up, and when people of my age were growing up, it was it was twenty thirty years after the Second World War. But we were able to listen to our parents and our grandparents, those who had been active in the in the in the fight against Nazism and fascism, uh, and really, it did seem that um, the, what, what they had experienced, what they had seen had been so shocking, so appalling, and what had actually happened uh, could never ever happen again, uh, the Holocaust. And on top of that, that um, essentially, you know, rational men and women could never ever be, well, of course, they wouldn't ever be attracted to anti-Semitism, but essentially anti-Semitism was a thing of the past. It was finally, after that, going to be eradicated. So I suppose my question is now, um, how, what, what, do, what do you make of the, it's, it's a very broad question, I suppose, but you know, how, how virulent is, is anti-Semitism in our societies, particularly uh, in, in America and Europe uh, right now, would you say? Well, first, Mark, thank you so much for having me, and I really appreciate the opportunity to have this discussion uh, with you and your audience. Um, you know, the way I think about anti-Semitism is, I mean, clearly you're right. I mean, the Holocaust was the, you know, the logical endpoint, as horrible as it was, of where anti-Semitism could lead, and it was an object lesson. But anti-Semitism has been around, you know, for thousands of years, and you could look back uh, at times where it was, you know, Jews being held collectively responsible for the death of Jesus or the blood libel, the idea that Jews steal Christian children and drain their blood to make matzahs or uh, ideas about the, uh, you know, the, the plague, the Black Death, that Jews were poisoning wells or the protocols of the elders of Zion, the czarist forgery promoted by others, you know, including Henry Ford here, the automobile manufacturer that saw a, a you know Jewish conspiracy behind um, you know everything that went wrong in the world. So anti-Semitism 
is in its essence a conspiracy theory, right? It's a belief that Jews conspire to harm non-Jews and it gives an explanation for what goes wrong in the world. And you know, my you mentioned my my day job is the director of the Bard Center for the Study of Hate. I don't think one can understand anti-Semitism without looking at it in the larger framework of the human capacity to hate. It's not the only type of hatred that exists. I mean, there are certain types that are uh, different from others in terms of how they manifest, but they're all a subset of the human capacity to how we see ourselves, how we define others, how we think of that other, and especially our capacity when we're, uh, we see our identities under threat to see those others as a, uh, you know, as a, as a nefarious force and therefore are fighting the, that other group that we see as a threat, we see as something noble. And we've seen that throughout history, regardless of where, regardless of when, regardless of religion, culture, economics, or any other variable. We've always had this us and them capacity to divide. There's even you know, in the academic world, there are even things now in brain science. You could show different parts of the brain fire differently when you know you show people pictures of people of different races. Not to say that that's ingrained about different races, but like who's the us and who's the them is a very quick calculation. And and when that happens, we tend to want to see things in binary terms and simple terms. We want to be certain. We want to have justice on our side and total evil on the other side. And I think anti-Semitism, you know, is plays into this human capacity. Um, and, you know, I could talk a little bit more if you like about how it actually works, but to think that one horrific event like the Holocaust uh, was going to make everybody say, ah, we should never, you know, the people that promote anti-Semitism see it as they're doing something noble and they see it as they're protecting themselves. So it's still, you know, very much of a concern. That being said, that being said, you know, there, there, there's no single metric to define how it is at a particular time. Yeah, there are things like hate crimes, attitudes. So but there's also the pushback to it. I mean, I don't know if you followed what was happening with Kanye West here. Um, you know, the guy with mm. uh, you know millions and millions of followers was doing the most vile type of anti-Semitic stuff. Um, but on the other hand, a lot of companies cut their ties with him. That shows there was a pushback to it. The mm-hmm. second gentleman had a conference at the White House about contemporary anti-Semitism. So all these different data points are part of the picture. This, I suppose this is partly what prompted my question. What you're talking about there in Kanye West and social media is how some of these tropes that, you know, most people have thought sort of disappeared, gone, been forgotten, you know, that, you know, we, we, rational people, we would not see this sort of stuff rear its ugly head again. But social media does seem to have played a, a massive role, of course, not just over anti-Semitism, but, you know, racism in general, you know, Islamophobia, all the rest of it. Uh, that seems, I suppose, axiomatic and obvious. But... Is, has that is that really been part of the problem, really, in in fanning the flames of a contemporary anti-Semitism, do you think, social media? I think it has a, a role in it, but it's again, it's about the ideas and how the ideas fit into people's perceptions of their lives and how they view other folk. So, um, you know, and social media is relatively new. There were concerns, obviously, about how hatred, including anti-Semitism, was promoted you know, when, when the printing press was invented and radio, you know, Father Coughlin in the United States was a huge, I mean, a yeah. huge media figure using um, television, cable news and so forth. So there are all these different, you know, media. So the, the social media, I think one of the things it does and cable news does the same thing in the United States too, where you have a lot of people in the bucket of Fox News and Newsmax and a lot of people in the sort of MSNBC world um, that it, it basically allows people to believe that everybody who sees the world their way is right. And everybody else who has a different position is not only wrong, but somehow, somehow evil. Uh, there's a guy named Matt Taibbi, who's also a, a Bard alum who wrote a book about uh, cable news. And his basic premise was 
that instead of saying, here's a complicated problem that we all have a hand in creating, that we all should have a hand in solving, um, you know, it's complex. Uh, the answer instead is it's a simple problem and it's their fault. And mm -hmm. they build ratings and monetize it. And I think social media, you know, does the same thing to a, a degree too. You know, one, one of the things that uh, drives my wife nuts is a few years ago, I said to her, you know, we get most of our news from CNN and MSNBC. I got to watch a lot of Fox News and Newsmax. And I did the same sort of equivalent online. And she said, how could you do that? You know, and I said, how could I not? There are millions of people who see the world this way. So I think yeah. this is a understanding of how the world works to see how people have an internal system of thought that may be fundamentally different and crossing those bridges and finding yes. ways to see those other buckets is important. It's, it's kind of, it's kind of silos, isn't it? I mean, I mean, just as yeah. a, I mean, I, when, when I've been living and working in America, watching, I, I, you know, the, I used to try and watch as many channels as possible and, it did strike me that there was an awful lot of opinion leading uh, the different networks and not a fantastic amount of reporting or analysis, which can't exactly help the kind of silo mentality. But mind you, you know, this, 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 is, a, this is a phenomenon that's happening in media all over the world, you know, and, and people seem to be attracted to where they feel comfortable. And, you know, if they're all writing green ink, well, everybody else who doesn't write in green ink must be mad. But look, Kenneth, if, if I could just... Um, uh, return to actually one of um, uh, uh, quite a famous article by you, Holocaust Education Alone Won't Stop Hate. That's what its title was. You actually proposed um, some ways to combat what we've just been talking about, persistent um, anti-Semitism. And there were three specific suggestions. I wonder if you might briefly address each of them. Um, I mean, you said human rights organizations must be challenged when they don't sufficiently assert the freedom from anti-Semitism as a human right. So when you wrote that, did you have any particular human rights groups in mind? Um, or was this really a call for all organizations to be rather more aware and to kind of step up to the plate? Well, it, it was, you know, mostly to get uh, groups to think about what anti-Semitism is and to see it in a human rights framework. But the larger reason why I wrote that was something that also plays today in terms of the, I know you want to talk about the IRA definition, but it, it's very mm. much a, a the same type of observation because what I was seeing that was frustrating me was the sort of general attitude of, again, looking for simple answers to complicated problems it was to say whenever you saw anti-semitism the you know the silver bullet the one solution the one thing to do was to provide holocaust education and again to me holocaust education is important i serve on a committee uh, that i'm honored to serve on at the holocaust museum in what from washington dc um i'm not diminishing it as something that i think is an mm. important piece of history for people to know about and to really grapple with but to think that somehow understanding that is going to be a cure-all for all different types of anti-Semitism makes you know no sense. I mean, there was a um, you know this was written not too long after the period of the Second Intifada, and we started seeing you know attacks on Jews in you know, the outskirts of Paris and so forth. And some of the you know attackers were people that were young Arab and Muslim students who were getting. You know, seeing pictures of Israeli soldiers with guns lording over their co-religionists and we're hearing things about Jews from satellite television back then was the big thing, not social media and some of their imams. And, you know, you think really teaching them about what happened at Wanzi is going to get them to change their view of, of what they think about Jews and associating that with Israelis. Um, so there was a lot of just sort of wishful thinking and sort of bromides that made me concerned about, yeah, that's a piece of the puzzle, but it, it, to say that's all we have to do. And as I put in that article, there was a, there were attacks on Jews in, in Sweden, for example, that clearly uh, were, you know, being motivated by some of the concerns about things in the Middle East. And the U.S. State Department put out a report 
praising Sweden for what it was doing about Holocaust education, which it was a total you know mismatch. So I, that was what I was trying to, to do to get people to think simple answers not going to happen. Mm -hmm. Same thing we're seeing now, and that's why you know with with the debate about the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism, rather than really think about what drives anti-Semitism today, and I can talk more about that you know if you'd like. There's a let's just have as many places as possible adopt this definition, and that's going to uh, somehow solve the problem. Again, it's a simple solution, and simple solutions don't work well, in my opinion. Yes, yes. I mean, well, I mean, there's certainly an argument. I mean, we'll get on to this because there's certainly an argument to say um, it's it, 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 some, sometimes it can actually be uh, counterproductive because the people who then uh, administer. Uh, administer the response if you like very often don't understand it themselves and all sorts of other things can happen that all go horribly wrong but it seems I think to many people that this idea that you can blame a people whoever they may be on the basis of uh, a, a government's actions uh, from somewhere else in the world is, is simply untenable and wrong um, and that, that seems to be a very powerful argument I just wanted the, the other also in that piece that you you wrote um you i mean actually you partly answered it just then because you know you you said governments must be engaged to ensure that they they investigate and and prosecute anti-semitic hate crimes fully and you know simply having a code or an education program um isn't going to be enough uh, so what what what, what do you think governments are now um doing more of what they should be doing and what is it they're doing um, that is right. Well, you know, it depends on the governments where, and I think that you know, there's there's a there's a need for governments obviously to uh, think clearly about what what hate crimes are and anti-Semitic ones, and that was again one of the to me one of the sad aspects of the whole debate about the IRA definition is that which, by the way, was you know written in two thousand four two thousand five. Um, the to me, a key part of it was to think about hate crimes because you may recall that there were, you know, all sorts of debates. There were debates about if a Jew was attacked because somebody was upset with an Israeli action. Is that something that should be counted as an anti-Semitic incident? There were questions about, you know, Jews being kidnapped. And, well, that's a positive stereotype. So Jews are rich. So is that an anti-Semitic? Um, you know, incident. And uh, I was taking some of the best knowledge from American hate crime law uh, thinking and trying to create uh, clear language that said, no, it doesn't matter if what a person really thinks about a Jewish person it doesn't really matter if it's uh, in, you know, because somebody's upset with an Israeli. I mean, the parallel to me was like, um, if you look back in the South in the 50s and 60s, if a black person was hung up by a tree and lynched because somebody thought blacks were shiftless and lazy, that was racism. But if they were upset with passage of the Civil Rights Action or you know Martin Luther King speech, that mm -hmm. wasn't. So you have to look at the you know in the selection of a person because of who they are or who they're associated with as the cornerstone of what a hate crime is. And, uh, you know, I think that the sort of understanding that was one of the keys for driving the idea of, uh, of having the you know, definition promoted. And that's being lost in the entire debate about how it's being used about speech about Israel, as opposed to saying, let's look at let's look at um, not necessarily the motive that somebody attacks somebody, but the intent to make an illegal selection. Um, mm -hmm. And I think the more that we can focus that and take away from trying to psychoanalyzing the perpetrators and looking at the intent to make an illegal selection, uh, the better off we'll be in thinking about hate crimes writ large and anti-Semitic ones in particular. Well, I mean, you, you have been quite clear because you have said um, monitoring groups must catalogue not only the old fashioned forms of religious and racial anti-Semitism, but also the more contemporary forms that mm -hmm. treat the Jewish state in the same bigoted manner that traditional anti-Semitism regards the individual Jew. And campus administrations need to uphold the highest academic standards 
and makes certain that while heated debate is encouraged, intimidation is prohibited. But I'm I am I'm wondering whether what you say there is 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 a more contemporary form of anti-Semitism, um, which is, you know, which is sometimes confused with criticism of the Jewish state and and is that the bit that is confusing really with labeling critics of israel um well particularly israel's human rights record um or you know what the un other amnesty betzalem other organizations have actually taught policies of apartheid israeli policies of apartheid yeah it, it, it's much more layered issue right so there's you know there are clear instances where you can bring israel into the picture uh, and it's anti-Semitic. And we just talked about one. You hold Jews collectively responsible. You beat up the Jew in front of you because you don't like what Israel is doing. Anti-Semitism, not a question. You take the historic tropes about Jews. Mm -hmm. uh, again, conspiracy theory and explaining what goes wrong in the world and cut and paste it and substitute Israel or Zionist for Jews in that way. Yeah, that's a, that's a problem. The flip side of it is that, you know, and this is when I teach, I mean, I, I encourage my students, you have to have intellectual curiosity and, you know, empathy to imagine that you were born into a different circumstance. So um, if you were a Palestinian that uh, for whom Zionism and the creation of an Israeli state was, a, you know, a thing that was really tragic for you, you're not opposing Zionism or Israel because it's Jewish. You're doing it because of the impact on you and two perhaps irreconcilable narratives. Um, and there's a whole bunch of gray space between those things. And there's also inside the Jewish community too, which is, this is playing out as well. I mean, I'm, I'm a Zionist. I believe in Israel's right to exist. Um, you know, I can explain more why I do if you're interested, but that's, you know, that's part of, of, of my view of the world and my Jewish identity. There are Jews for whom that's not the case. Uh, there are you know, very orthodox groups like the Satmar for whom uh, mm. having a state is uh, something you can't do before the Messiah comes. And there are many younger Jews in particular for whom uh, their understanding of Judaism and how you treat the stranger repairing the world can't be squared with what they see in terms of either Israel's actions or even, you know, it, its existence as a, as a Jewish state. And as much as I might disagree with them and as much as I might say, listen, the logical implication of what you're saying is, you know, the, that it, preordains potentially a lot of uh, bloodshed because Israelis, Israeli you know, Jews are never going to give up the right to uh, have their self-determination as a haven for Jews, which you were mentioning the Holocaust in the aftermath, the connection of Jews historically going back thousands of years to the land, the fact that the you know, names of cities there are not uh, you know, new London, new Berlin, new um, Baghdad, but names in the biblical times, all those things, you know, come to come together, um, you know, as, as a, you know, as a, as a part of the puzzle. So, you know, there are lots of ways to be uh, critical of Israel, but not every type of anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. And that's, I think, is part of the the battle that we're seeing inside the Jewish community. Do you have to have a particular view to be inside the tent? Uh, so it's a church-state issue here when people are trying to legislate that there's a particular view yes. of Queens. If I may, this is what I was intrigued about, really, because, you know, we... we we, we do have a situation where there's a multitude of different opinions within the um, Jewish community. Um, there's a, there's, you know, sometimes, you know, you, 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 you come across people who say, well, you know, the, one of the best ways to seriously tackle anti-Semitism is to, is to really push for that kind of secular state of Israel, Palestine, where all religions are equal, all human rights are equal. It's immaterial what religion you have. Um, uh, but and 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 that is a way you see because I mean you you talked about the Jewish state there. Um, I mean, does that for you mean that um, essentially you acknowledge that that state has to be a kind of a theocracy a bit because the 
you know, Iran is described as an as Islamic state. Um, of course, it has, as you know, reserved places in the Majli for religious minorities. But I mean, that's it's still a theocracy. I mean, are you saying that effectively Israel um, is a theocracy um, or should become one? Or uh, would you agree that actually if it was a sec was actually what it is supposed to be in many ways, a secular democracy, you might avoid um, it might avoid some of the criticism that it gets. Well, there's a lot in that question. I mean, the, look, yeah. the, the, in my view, um, you know, Israel has this tension and it has a, a tension uh, between wanting to be a democracy and wanting to maintain a Jewish demographic and therefore, you know, political majority. Um, and it also has the complexities of you have within the boundaries of, um, you know, the state pre-67, between 48 and 67, you have a you know, significant uh, non-Jewish minority, Palestinian, Arab, for the most part. And you also have millions in the land that Israel controls in the West Bank. Um, you know, how that's going to be resolved. I don't know. I know there are people that talk about confederation, other models. I, my view, and I could easily be wrong, is that the only way you don't have perpetual conflict preordained and sort of like the, the best solution of all the bad ones is to have two states where people can feel that they're controlling their own destiny. Um, but, you know, again, while that's, however that's working out, uh, what I see is the problem when people think about anti-Semitism is so much of the discussion is being driven around the Israel-related issues, whereas to me, especially sitting in the United States and having just come through the period of the Trump presidency, not that anti-Semitism didn't exist well before Trump, but, you know, I, I see anti-Semitism again as conspiracy theory. So one of the things that says to me about how you, you look at it is you don't necessarily limit your inquiry to what people are saying about Jews, right? So you have um, the ability to make people more susceptible to conspiratorial thinking when you have drivers that tell people that even these other groups, Muslims or immigrants, um, you know, you name it, are evil and have to be combated because if you look, I mean, I'll share with you a, a metaphor that I, um, to me was brilliant back at the time of the militia movement. I wrote a book uh, about the Oklahoma City bombing. There was a uh, colleague who was working in Montana, which was one of the ground zero places for the militia movement. And he described the militias as a funnel moving through space. So what he meant by that is that people got sucked into the lip of the funnel by mainstream ideas. Here it was gun control and land use and federal land and so forth. Inside that system, we were talking about that before with social media and the, you know, the buckets and the silos, inside that system, people get you know, exposed to conspiratorial thinking. And whenever that happens, it's inevitable that you get exposed to the anti-Semitic conspiracies and out of the small end fun, you know, come people like the Oklahoma City you know, bombers. And what's interesting about that to me, it says if you're thinking about anti-Semitism, don't focus so much on the small end of the funnel. Think of the drivers at the big end of the funnel. So the more people, leaders, you know, mm -hmm. are pushing people into conspiratorial thinking, that to me is more, you know, going to mm -hmm. be an indication of that. And just look at the Tree of Life, you know, attack here, right? The synagogue where 11 Jews were killed. What was the precursor to it? it? It was Trump and others talking about invaders coming over the southern border. And the synagogue had hosted a, a group on immigration. And the guy shot Jews. You see that as anti-Semitism. The shooting at the Walmart of Mexicans and Mexican-Americans a couple of months later, nobody would say it was anti-Semitic. But the, the two shooters had the same ideology. Mm -hmm. They just chose different targets. So my point is to look broader, look at the social things that are driving people to yes. anti-Semitic well, thinking. In, in in doing that, in looking in looking more broadly, uh, Kenneth, because you know, and, uh, yeah, anti-Semitism, um, racism of all forms, uh, it, 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 there's a commonality behind so much of this hatred, as you've been outlining to us. So people will turn around and they'll say, "Okay, well, 
you know, Kenneth was a key figure, you know, behind the uh, IHRA definition. But why isn't there a definition for those at the, you know, at the, at the sharp end of um, other forms of racism? Or should we just not be trying to, um, should we not be trying to simplify things and make it very clear that all forms of racism are, are totally unacceptable? And this is that this is essentially a code for all racisms wherever they occur. Whether it's, you know, it's racism against a Catholic person, or a, a Muslim, or a Jew, or or or, a, or or an old socialist, you know, what, what what should there not be some kind of? Well, I mean, that's a rather flippant point, actually. But the but shouldn't there be some kind of, uh, uh, you know, that some special special code for, uh, you know, against racism per se, right across the board? Well, I listen. I, I agree with your basic premise that when we, you know, see other people in a way that we have prejudice, we discriminate, we harass, you know, we marginalize, we say they're not fabrics of the society. Those are all things that we should push against. The challenge that I've seen, though, is that the, uh, you know, twofold. One is that with the definition was created looking back in time at a really in, in 2004 and 2005, it was called the working definition or the EUMC definition that got basically adopted by the international Holocaust remembrance Alliance in 2016. But it, it was a tool primarily to, to help data collectors to take a temperature. So it wasn't to cut and paste the thing to, to stop speech it certainly wasn't to say in a place like a college campus, oh, here's a speech, it's okay, here's not, let's do groupthink. I mean, you know, talk about McCarthyism, that's, as opposed to saying, you know, how do you feel about these issues and what do you think about them? What are the contradictions? It's not to simplify thinking. What it was mostly for was there was a report that came out in 2004 by the EUMC, and they had a couple of, of you know points to it uh, about attacks on Jews across Europe. One was, wait a minute, we don't have a common set of references for our data collectors to use across different parts of Europe, and that would be helpful. Um, and they said, in the interim, let's just say anti-Semitism is manifested as a series of stereotypes about Jews. And then they try to qualify, well, the Jews attacked because, not because somebody took these stereotypes, put them on Israelis, put them back on the Jew in Paris and beat them up uh, because they were upset at Israeli policy. That's lamentable, but not anti-Semitism. So, you know, the, the thing was created to try to create an understanding, as I was explaining before, about what a hate crime was, and also to give the bean counters some uh, guidance. But what it's been used for and I would never recommend this for any other type of hatred, is to say, okay, let's stop trying to say whether it's in the gray area, this area, that area, let's try, let's just have a simple sort of like a Hogwarts sorting hat to say, mm -hmm. is it this, is it that, should we, you know, condemn it or should we say it's okay? Um, and that, that to me is especially dangerous when it's trying to be incorporated into law. So, you know, to teach about it, yeah, there are like three different definitions floating around, probably more. I use them when I teach. It's good to get, uh, you know, people looking at a subject from different things. But especially when you have political examples, you know, that's a problem. And when I, you know, testify you know, in front of... Politicians try to pluck solutions and if uh, if someone very clever comes along and seems to do their job for them, that can become you know this is this is without they don't a lot of politicians as you know don't do a great deal of thinking they look for instant remedies and uh, they think we we'll tick this box it's all done. But look, there's there's a question that Omar has got. This sure. is actually referring sure. back to a, a previous um, question and answer we just had. But Omar um, in London says, um, as you say, with Zionism by its definition being intrinsically tied to concern over demographics, with it aiming to establish and maintain a state with a majority of Jews, reducing Palestinians to a demographic problem in their own land must surely be a racist ideology. What, what would you say to that? I would say that there's, you know, again, it's not as simple as, as, as that. I understand from a Palestinian perspective why the whole idea of Zionism is problematic. From a Zionist perspective, um, 
you know, this is self-determination in a Jewish homeland. There's two different narratives and two different perspectives and two different types of, of ability to live lives is perhaps in perpetual conflict. Absolutely. But the idea of, again, you know, the, the Jewish story um, is one of connection to the land uh, of, uh, you know, temples around the world face towards Jerusalem, the po- you know, the poetry. And, and to give you a, a, just why this is complicated, uh, I have a couplet in my book, which um, I think encapsulizes it. I have a a, I cite a letter from the Palestinian campaign for the academic and cultural boycott of Israel to a group of American Indians uh, in Canada and New York State, the Iroquois Confederacy, um, basically saying to these folks who were, you know, these folks had lacrosse as their major sport. It's very important to them. Culturally in the world lacrosse, something where there was going to happen in Israel. And they said, don't come. Like us, you're, you know, indigenous folks, you're, uh, you know, be traitorous to us. Uh, you've had your land stolen. You've been a victim of settler colonialism. Um, don't come. And then I contrast that with a, a piece from Judea Pearl, who was the father of Daniel Pearl, the journalist mm-hmm. who was beheaded by yeah. terrorists. And they said, for those who say Israel is a settler colonial estate, uh, name me another place where you know in folklore for for generations jews have been connected where again not naming places uh you know new london new uh whatever um to you know to that really underscores the connection the historic connection the yearning for the land the importance to jewish identity and then i quote a, a scholar who says that you know in some ways Israel is a settler colonial state, and you have to look at it that way. And, and in some ways, it's not. And you know, the people that push one line or the other in totality are really engaging communal advocacy. And from his point of view, as a real historian, has to navigate all these complexities. And I, I would agree with that scholar. Right. So, um, looking looking at um, the era definition of anti-Semitism you were the author of. You have, you know, in recent years expressed some concern that uh, it has it been used by some people essentially to try and silence serious critics of, um, of Israeli uh, policies in the occupied territories. And I think you said, I think in 2019, you were quite concerned that various right-wing Jewish groups and governments were using that definition. Um, to silence people that you regard as being legitimate, um, you know, critics of Israel. Um, so, how, I mean, in practice, how 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 is this happening, um, and what should what can be done about it? Because we have just by you know by chance this evening learned the news about uh, Kenneth Roth, the former director of Human Rights Watch. You know him, Kenneth, and he was mm-hmm. on our show last week. Um, his uh, fellowship at the Kennedy School of Business has been uh, restored. He's going to take it up now. Um, he had been blocked. Um, and Kenneth was was fairly convinced, as were a lot of people, because some people close to the dean of the university um, essentially said that uh, Human Rights Watch had been far too critical of Israel. So that was, he, that was really seen as kind of... Um, uh, uh, a, a silencing of, of, a, of, a, of somebody who's not just been critical of hu- Israel and human rights, but human rights abuses wherever they've taken place across the world. And there've been a lot of academic studies, as you know, into the work of Human Rights Watch. It's because possibly because Human Rights Watch has been so effective that um, blocking Kenneth Stern for some was seen as would have su- such a successful move. But is 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 the Kenneth Roth example? I suppose. One of the most obvious examples of how uh, this is being abused in a way. I mean, what do you think? Well, you know, again, uh, Ken Roth said that the dean got pressure, or it was, um, but it's unclear from whom and how that happened. Mm-hmm. But it, 
I, but it's not the only instance where there's a University of Toronto situation, a University of Washington yeah. situation. There have yeah. been other situations, but but here's here's sort of the the trajectory of of what I what I've seen and what my concerns are. Again, when I was the lead drafter of the definition, it was primarily so that we could have an instrument to take temperature over time and across borders. And there were examples about Israel put into it because we were seeing whenever there were instances of fighting in the Middle East and certain type of verbiage in the press, there was a correlation. I wouldn't say a causation, but there are almost like graphs you could superimpose over each other mm. of attacks on Jews in the streets of London and streets of Paris. So it was a data point. It wasn't to use as a sort of a blunt instrument to label anybody an anti-Semite. But what I started seeing, so remember this is 2005, UMC adopts it. Flip forward to 2010. And I first started seeing this problem on American campuses. What happened was there was a, this a 1964 Civil Rights Act in the United States that uh, applies to uh, campuses and universities can lose their funding if there's a pervasive, hostile environment to people on the base of race and other things, but it didn't include religion. So the Department of Education said Jews and Sikhs and Muslims are protected as ethnicities. I thought, great, I actually brought a, a complaint for some high school students. There was a kick at Jew day and swastikas and the use of the way to have the school administration that wasn't doing hardly a damn thing to do actually do something. But what happened is you had some of these you know, pro-Israel, strongly on the right groups, Zionist Organization of America and others, had this idea of, oh, let's take this new power that we have to threaten lawsuits, and let's do that and include in the lawsuits. I mean, some of them did talk about some things that were you know, like spitting in actions and so forth, but they were replete with examples like they're teaching a class and using this text, which we find violates the definition. It's a speaker that's coming, that saying things that's violating the definition. They were using purely academic things on the campus to make these Title VI cases. And when that those cases failed, one of the proponents said, well, at least we're chilling this type of speech. And then they tried to get Congress to pass it, and they got the president to sign the executive order. And now you're seeing uh, pushes all over the place to get it adopted. Now, again, you know, they will say it's ubiquitous. It's not. It's a small percentage of places. But, you know, they're trying to use it. Clearly, the only thing that it's substantially being used for is to go after speech that people don't like uh, about Israel, including anti-Zionist speech. And particularly on a campus, other places too, but particularly on a campus, you have to engage ideas. When you say that certain ideas are not okay, that's a problem. And as yes. I mentioned before, this is a, just a church state issue here too, deciding an internal Jewish communal question. It, I think it's certainly the case in many British uh, academic institutions now, there's actually a fear of discussing um, issues around the Middle East, for instance, if there's an invitation to uh, an ambassador from Palestine or Israel, uh, people get very nervous about it. Um, there are all, all sorts of various trigger points are set off. There's been, um, as you probably know, a lot of pressure on British universities to adopt the mm -hmm. definition, including my own um, down the road, which is quite interesting because it's historically had a very close connection with the British Conservative Party, um, but also primary too with um uh, with traditions of free speech um and so it is actually one of the one of uh, one of the small number of universities that's actually quietly kicking this into the touch because it's very concerned that uh for the reasons that you've just been talking about um essentially uh you know the de the, the the definition can can and has been abused to try and really stop uh, free speech there's a question if i don't if if if, you, if it's all right if you're taking from um Gemma sure. in Yorkshire in northern england she sent an email in um she says along with the calls for public bodies such as universities to adopt the ihra definition students and academics especially palestinians have faced what they argue are increasing campaigns of intimidation and attacks against their free speech um, using this definition. So how can we combat this to ensure that Palestinians and their supporters are not silenced over their criticism of Israel at universities and, and elsewhere? How, how, can, how do you think this, we could, this could be done? 
Well, I think there are, there are lots of ways. One is, again, to talk about what the academy should be, right? The academy should be a place where, you know, ideas are looked at, students are forced to feel uncomfortable uh, and to have their thinking disturbed and then to think about how they're going to resolve these conflicts because they're going to live as adults once they leave university for the rest of their lives. And, you know, the last thing you want to do is encourage some sort of group think uh, and to punish people for saying not, I'm not saying not to oppose things that you find maybe bigoted or you disagree with and to speak out about it and, and try to counter it. I'm saying you don't want to use levers of trying to chill and suppress to get administrators to have to weigh in uh, on on things. And, you know, it's again, it's a, a matter of good teaching. So I think that's one thing is to understand this, the the um, you know, the reason that the university exists is one of the reasons, too that uh, I've been outspoken against academic boycotts of Israel because ideas should be looked at on the basis of their merit, not on the nationality. And I think, again, we started out this conversation with talking about both sides are trying to chill speech on the other side. And I see that in, in both directions. And the, you know, the commonality is to speak up for academic freedom, mm -hmm. to speak up for free speech. Um, and I think it's important to uh, try to push back when universities uh, are being told to adopt this. And, and the challenge is that I've heard some people say it's only about trying to silence, you know, is uh, pro-Israel speech. This, the people that are pushing it, some of them may be doing that, but there's also from their point of view, a view of we have to stick up for Jewish students. Jewish students are getting hearing things that they don't like. And my response is, if they don't like it, I understand it. Help them understand what's going on. Help them create environments on a campus where people can have difficult discussions. I outline in my book, in the last chapter, classes that can do this, things that universities should be doing uh, to create an environment that encourages people to disagree uh, and gives them the tools to do that. So there are a lot of different aspects of it, um, but I'm... Um, you know, again, and I think the Jewish community should step up. One of the things that that that's discouraging is that I've seen the you know sort of mainstream Jewish groups jump on this Ira is going to cure all bandwagon, mm -hmm. um, and that that's it's like a black hole. It sucks away from the other types of things. And to give you one example, to me that that's particularly you know heartbreaking. There was a it was Canadian. There was a a uh, question about whether a particular school district should adopt and apply the IRA definition. And it was a 15 year old, uh, you know, girl who was describing the harassment and bullying she was experiencing as a Jew. Uh, she was having coins thrown at her. She was, you know, things like that. And she, her testimony before the school group was the only way you could solve this was adopting IRA. Now, you know, I didn't put, you know, throwing pennies as part of the, the tick, you know, for the, the bean counters. But to think that this is the one thing that's going mm -hmm. to solve anti-Semitism, as opposed to talking about how do you deal with bullying? How do you create respect for each other? How do you tell on a campus you have to look out for each other? That doesn't mean to suppress speech. That means to really well, engage yeah, with each other, honestly. As you say that, I'm thinking back to 2017 and the General Assembly, and I think that was, that was shortly after the um, attack on the synagogue that you mentioned, the Tree of Life synagogue, and the General Assembly held an event um, uh, with the Jewish communities, but it was multi-denominational, actually. It was a very, very, very powerful event. It got a lot of um, media attention. Um, and in a, in a way, it, it was it seemed to me really rather more impactful than, for instance, what we are hearing now at the General Assembly, which is that uh, Hungary currently has the presidency, Israel has the deputy presidency, um, and they're very keen, Israel, and I, there may well be Hungarian support for it, I don't know, but to have the General Assembly adopt the IRA definition. Now, I suppose that poses another point. I mean, this 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 catch-all, you know, um, definition that you've identified problems with, um, when it is that catch-all, uh, then becomes a lightning conductor and very, very divisive.
Do you think that is a, a sensible thing to be happening in the General Assembly now, to try and get the well, union to adopt it? Yeah, I'm. Listen, I'm. I'm you know, I'm not an expert on on the UN and what the implications of everything it, it does. Uh, but I, you know, I'm. I've seen from the time that the definition was created with its specific intended uses, um, how it's been used as a way, like a you know a hate speech code, mm -hmm. and. I, and, uh, you know, it, it's, you know, disheartening for me because, I mean, I've seen this playing out. There's a situation that's going to develop at a legal association in the United States where this is being debated. And what I've, what I've said is, look, you're dividing people who should be concerned about anti-Semitism into uh, this battle over, you know, people that... Uh, have one view of Israel and another. And to me, politically, when you want to push back against anti-Semitism, which again, I see on the right and the left, I see it as conspiracy theory. When you're telling a bunch of people who um, have concerns about anti-Semitism, but they also have concerns about free speech, and they also have concerns about academic freedom, that there is one person wrote, you know, they're basically no different than Kanye West, that's a stupid way to try to organize against anti-Semitism. What you want to do is build a bigger tent. Now, are there questions about inside the Jewish community and elsewhere about those who are totally anti-Zionist, whether is that view, do people consider that anti-Semitic or not? I don't. I know people who do, and I explain why I don't. But to you know, then have that become the major fulcrum you know, makes mm. makes no sense in terms well, of organizing if, against if it. I may, you, you can have that, that debate in um, in a community. You can have that debate per se, of course. But the we have a situation. This is a, a, a um, by the way, sadly, we've probably got any time for another couple of questions. But one question, and, and this is um, this is very much a sort of in a British political context. Um, I mean, you, you may be familiar with the a British Labour Party and the way that um, uh, issues around anti-Semitism have become a, a, a very serious bone of contention um, within the political class, the media and, and all the rest of it, uh, which for many of us who grew up in the Labour Party always seemed, seemed rather surprising in a way because um, the, the, the Labour Party or the left, wherever you were in the world, tended to be the last place in you know, the social democratic left where where anti-Semites or racists might gather. It seemed bizarre that people would be attracted. But nonetheless, there was a big issue around anti-Semitism and how it was dealt with in the Labour Party. But we have a contemporary situation. And I raise this because I spoke to um, a, a prominent um, Jewish member of the Labour Party here uh, just the other day, uh, who is part of an organisation called Jewish Voice for Labour. And she told me that, um, and, and by the way, this was all borne out by the research, very careful research that they've that they've done. That there are about two and a half thousand members of the British Labour Party, apparently, um, but there are currently some fifty nine of whom have been suspended or expelled um, from the British Labour Party, and essentially all of them um, have been accused in one way or another of being anti-Semitic. And this is a very difficult thing for many people to try and get their heads around, not least of all for those Jewish members of the Labour Party that have been treated in this manner. And essentially, it would appear that we have this blunt instrument. We have um, people who are in charge of disciplinary processes saying, oh, well, if you're critical of Israel, if, you, if, you're, and if you're critical of Zionism in the way that you've just been talking about, that somehow makes you an anti-Semite. How, how can you be um, a secular Jewish socialist, critical of Israel and and be an anti-Semite. It doesn't seem to doesn't seem to make sense to me. Well, again, you put your finger on a fact that you know that this is a, a deep controversy, and there have been you know again I haven't followed those fifty nine cases. And as an old trial mm -hmm. trial lawyer, I know not to speculate <laughs> on the individual things in cases, but yeah. I, but but I I will say I remember some of the you know reports are coming out before, and there were certainly instances where there were Jewish uh, you know MPs who were getting some really vile, clearly anti-Semitic mm -hmm. stuff, including death threats and um 
being called names that were, you know, just really horrible and clearly an indication of, of anti-Semitism. But what was uh, really interesting in the, that report that I'm thinking about is the there was a push to say apply IRA to it, and the instances that were seen as violations of you know, uh, members, uh, sort of human rights in a sense by, by anti-Semitism that they, uh, witness was found under the Equalities Act. So, you know, you didn't need this extra mm -hmm. sort of blunt yeah. instrument to look at that just in the United States. I mean, the, the Kanye West thing, I didn't hear any of these folks that are making the claim you can't understand anti-Semitism. You know, it's been around for 2,000 years, but you can't understand it unless you use the definition. I didn't see any of these folks, many of whom correctly called out Kanye West's anti-Semitism, uh, said that you needed to use a definition for that. So it's only about the matter of, of pro-Palestinian speech, or pro primarily about that, that people are using it as a, as a blunt instrument. Mm-hmm. Well, look, Kenneth. One last question, if 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 you're if you're willing, and, and this sure. is from um, this is actually from uh, from Sam in New York, where you are. Um, and Sam asks, um, what does Kenneth think of the Jerusalem Declaration of anti-Semitism? Um, perhaps you could tell us something about it, because I, I don't know about it. Sure. Newly launched initiatives like the Diaspora Alliance have adopted it as something of a guiding principle for them. But Israel's most right-wing supporters are vehemently opposed to it. Does Kenneth think that the JDA is a better substitute? Can Can you tell us something about it? Sure, sure. And there are, there are others as well. There's um, there's a nexus definition. It's a group that came out of USC that now actually has a home at Bard. We don't endorse it, but it's a different definition. Um, the Jerusalem uh, definition was put together by a bunch of Jewish studies and uh, scholars and Jewish historians. And the reason why they, both of these came together and there's another one, Independent Jewish Voices in Canada, is that they saw the problem with the abuse of the IRA definition in terms of speech. And the reason that academics were very concerned about it was precisely the things that I was talking about, that they were worried about these groups are going to come and look for what's being taught, what's being assigned, uh, and, and threaten lawsuits. So what they thought is the answer is, let's have another definition that you know, that doesn't have the capacity to be abused this way. And I think that, you know, each of them has the, the Nexus and the JDA are better in one way. They're, they're mess, less likely to be abused over the Israel-Palestine divide. Um, neither of them have language as good as the, what's now the IRA on, on anti-Semitic hate crimes, but they all have the core of what anti-Semitism is, uh, reflected in different words, but the basic idea that I started off with, anti-Semitism, this conspiracy theory, um, ex believing that Jews conspire to harm humanity and giving an explanation for what goes wrong in the world, including, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, a Trump-supporting uh, congressperson who retweeted something about Jewish space lasers, you know, causing California forest fires. So all of those would come under any of the definitions, and that's fine. But the divide over the Israel-Palestine um, problem is one that I think those other two avoid. But the, the, the question is, what do we want to use a definition for? And I don't think any of them should be used as a hate speech code on a campus. I think they could be used for having conversations about anti-Semitism. And I think there, you know, there are good ways, too, to point to the definition and other things to to underscore one of the other problems um and this may be a good good note to finish that the you know what i've seen is that the divide over israel palestine is such that people in one camp or the other discount clear instances of anti-semitism from people from their camp they try to give excuses, they try to, you know, to, to marginalize it, to try to homogenize it and make it disappear. And I think one of the things that's really important is to have a consistent principle when you're talking about anti-Semitism. Is it conspiracy theory about Jews? Is it harassing in that way? Um, you know, is it being used in that ideological way, whether it's in the left and the mm -hmm. right? 
then you speak out about it. And if you don't keep a consistent principle on the academy, if you don't keep a consistent principle of academic freedom, regardless of which side is pushing to censor the other, you're never going to succeed mm. in getting uh, a, a correct pushback of this and maintaining what to me is one of the most precious jewels of our society, the academy, where you're supposed to be looking at our ideas. Indeed. And I, and I suppose in closing, Ken, I mean, nobody could really disagree with the idea that the consistency and racism needs to be opposed wherever it raises its ugly head. And in the Israel-Palestine context, to which, of course, we're particularly interested in here at Palestine Deep Dive, there are, of course, um, you know, on both the Palestinian and the Israeli side, there has been um, an intemperance and a refusal to accept the racism that is being meted out. So, I mean, I suppose um, that we, we could end by saying that, um, you know, the lesson to be learned is that uh, it has to be opposed wherever it appears, wherever, it, and there, the, essentially uh, racism in all its forms is unacceptable. And also if it's being pursued by a state, a state policies. And I think that's possibly where we should, you know, we, we, we would probably end up agreeing because, we could look at, for instance, some of the policies that were pursued in South Africa and some of the policies that are being pursued in in the occupied territories, in Israel and the occupied territories now, and see those similarities as the UN, as Amnesty, as Betzalem and others have done. But, I mean, essentially, we really wanted to, to, to talk to you today um, about this whole broader issue of anti-Semitism, how to tackle it, um, your work that you've been engaged in over the years, and also your rather courageous stand in actually saying, well, look, some of the work that I've been engaged in has ended up being um, uh, you know, misappropriated in a way and misused. And I think that's very, very important for people who want to try and have a measured understanding of things um, and who, like all of us, are opposed to racism of, of all kinds, wherever, wherever it appears. So, Kenneth, I'm, I'm really very grateful for, and from all of us here at Palestine Deep, I thank you for joining us. Uh, today from New York. Um, let's keep in touch um, and um, and let's hope that we'll speak again and, and good luck with all the work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure.